Hey, this is Steve Poltz, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So, Steve, first of all, let's, let's talk about your love of baseball. What, sure. Where does that come from? Well, we moved from Canada when I was a little kid to Southern California, and we were Dodger fans because we lived in Pasadena, and so the, those games were on the radio. And so my dad would always have the transistor radio. He loved baseball. And so ever since I was a kid, I just remember that my dad would have the game on. So as a kid, um, if you're always with your dad, you kind of yeah, yeah. you do what your dad does. And so I got into baseball, and <clears throat> he would explain it to me, and he'd curse at the radio when the Dodgers didn't do well. And so... <laughs> I, I used to get a kick out of it, and then we'd watch the games together, and it sort of became almost kind of like a sacred thing to me and a way uh, to spend this time with my dad. Your dad, you were close to him. Yeah, and he's still alive. He's 89 years old, and he just got a pacemaker put in and this thing called an ablation, and the ablation stops the top of the, top of the heart to talking to the bottom of the heart, and the pacemaker takes over for the top of the heart. And he was close to death, and now he's got this new lease on life. And we just lost my mom in December, and he was married to my mom uh, 61 years. So um, I still call my dad just about every day, and I mostly discuss the Dodger games because he's still such a Dodger fan. Right. Where does he live? Still he in lives in uh, San Diego now. Oh, okay. But he lived in Palm Springs for years, and he was born in Winnipeg and then lived in Windsor, Ontario, and then met my mom in Montreal, um, she was teaching English. She was from Cape Breton, and then they ended up getting married in Halifax, and that's where I was born. How, how early did you, uh, what, how old were you when you left Halifax? I was just a little toddler when we left. Um, so we would come back to Canada only in the summers, because all the relatives were, we were the only ones to move, and still we were, all the relatives are still either in Ontario or in, uh, Nova Scotia, somewhere. Okay. Like, so I get the impression that Canada is still a big part of your life. I mean, it, in the songs that you write, there's a lot of Canadian references, even a lot of Newfoundland references. Yeah, Canada is important because uh, I think, once again, it's a way that got me feeling close to my folks because that was their past. And us going back and having... Uh, that was the only time I had a sense of family and cousins is they would either come out to visit us or we would go up there. And so Canada was always this special place, and that was where I was from. And my dad would always root for Canada and the Olympics. And right. So. And what was it like for you when you moved to the States? Did it mean anything to you, or is it just you were too young to know? Um, my memory of it was becoming citizens when we moved here, or to there. Right. And uh, I remember... My dad studying to take a test to become a citizen, and you had to take an oath back then because there was a communist scare that you weren't communist. Right. And I remember thinking that that meant once we took the oath that I had to revoke my Catholicism, and I was like an altar boy, and so I didn't know what it meant to become a U.S. citizen, so I didn't want to do it because I thought that meant I wasn't going to be a Catholic anymore. I started crying. So... <laughs> How important was religion to you in your upbringing? It was ingrained into my head, <laughs> right. brainwashed. Like, 
I was very, I mean, I went to Catholic schools and I was scared of the nuns and the priests. And it all seemed so official and so beautiful. Their outfits they would wear, the nuns, the habit, a full habit. I, I really got into studying how they looked, how it was so starched white, the white part of it. And they looked like penguins, the dark part. And, and then the priests, every time like a cardinal would come and visit and they'd have, they'd swing the thing with the incense on it and the candles and the stained glass windows, it was foreboding and also welcoming in a weird way and the stations of the cross and the old women doing the rosary, kneeling down, saying prayers, the oil they'd put on your forehead to anoint you and the and on ash wednesday the ash they would put on my head and the way i would look when i'd leave and we'd all go to eat at like denny's or something (laughs) and we'd have the ash on our head and we'd see who else had it and it gave me a sense that i was a member of a tribe and that i belonged in a weird way and so i still talk about religion a lot on stage but i do it in kind of a sarcastic way like that it's like a comic book like Jesus was able to turn these loaves into several loaves and walk on water. He's like a superhero. Mm-hmm. And if you really analyze it all, it's, it's, it's just as silly as when people make fun of uh, the Mormon church and they say that he had to put on special glasses or he couldn't read the messages that were left. It's right. all kind of silly if you look at it from a educational standpoint and analytical and and really study it it's goofy but and i know that it is and so all my friends but it meant a lot to you at one point oh yeah and all my friends that i have are atheists it seems except for me and so we have the best religious discussions because they laugh because and i say i don't care what you guys say this stuff is so ingrained in my head even when an ambulance goes by our fire truck I still want to make the sign of the cross to say a quick prayer for who, whomever they're going after or whatever's going right. on. I still have this tremendous sense of guilt for things I've done. It's an unhealthy thing, but I've accepted it, and I'm, I think it's funny, and it's made me more creative. And at this point, do you follow it at all? Like, Are you devoted to it at all? No, but I still pray. I say, my, I say prayers, but if I'm traveling like, Today I was walking around Toronto, and if I had walked by a Catholic church, I I would have gone in. I'll go in and um, dip my hand in the holy water, make the sign of the cross, and say a couple prayers for friends. Maybe light a votive candle, and then laugh, and then leave, and know that it is such a it's like a ceremony almost. And the funny thing is, is my mom was very religious, and then at the end of her life, she was totally an atheist. And she was really into Christopher Hitchens, and we would have great religious discussions. And I loved, uh, that's what I miss the most, is the the discussions I would have with my mom. Political discussions, and literature, and religion, everything. Right. It was fun to discuss those things with her. Religion is also one of the reasons why you became a musician, or it had something to do with it, right? Yeah, I my mom was the choir director, so I was an altar boy, and then my mom was the, she did the church choir, the folk mass it was called. So I remember when at first it was a Latin mass, and then they switched, and it became this kind of hip 
folk mass in the 60s, you know, Dylan was playing guitars and they'd have these songs and the movie The Singing Nun came out. And so I was playing guitar and I played in folk mass and my mom was directing the folk choir. It was amazing. And so uh, we would have all the kids come over to our house and everybody would hang out and my mom would put on these shows that were, and it kind of gave me a sense of theater and almost it was great training for what I'm doing now because my ma would put it together into this show, uh, like a Christmas Eve mass, for instance. She'd put candles all from the outside of the church where people walked in, and we would do songs from Godspell, like Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord. I don't know if you know these songs, yeah, but it yeah. would be like, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it would be this show, and I'd be so nervous, and we'd have it all structured out, and I'd have the guitar, and this other girl, Tammy Burt, I've never forgotten her, she'd have the other guitar, and we became best friends. And she was actually the first girl I kissed. And we were, we were playing these songs, they were nylon strings guitar, guitars, and it was a show, man. So were you playing guitar mainly for that purpose, or were you also playing other songs no i started playing because i want we had an old guitar in our attic and the guitar had like three strings on it and three broken strings and three regular strings and i found it in the attic and i said i want to play guitar i was obsessed with elvis presley so my dad found a teacher and called up and said he would get me lessons i mean that's what you did back then Mm -hmm. and i mean now you can learn all this on youtube but this is the 60s, the early 60s. And so I was six years old. It was 1966. And the guy that showed up, he was a World War II veteran, had been injured in the war. I've never forgotten this. And he had a wooden leg and a glass eye. And I, I also remember he smelled like mothballs, like his jacket. Like he had this scent when he walked in. Right. And the first thing he did when he sat down was he popped out his glass eyeball out of his socket and asked me if I wanted to hold it. Well, that's nice. But I was too scared. So I never did. <laughs> Why would he do that? I don't know. But And then I remember he had a crush on my mom. And my mom was beautiful. She looked like Audrey Hepburn in the 60s. She was gorgeous. And so he always was trying to hit on my mom, which I remember now. I, I There were just like all these little funny things growing up. And so he was my teacher. And I thought I was going to rock like Elvis Presley. And then he brought out the Mel Bay guitar method. And the first song we learned was Down in the Valley. And it's like, down in the valley, valley solo, where we'd just finger pick the notes. And it was so boring. My heart sank. And I was like, this sucks. And I wanted to rock. <laughs> but eventually, I got a new teacher. And she was a blonde. And her name was Cindy Lamb. And I had a crush on her. I was like, we moved to Palm Springs. It was like 1968. Hippies were starting to come out all over the place. I remember my parents took us to Transcendental Meditation, and we started meditating, and I was really into the Beatles and Bob Dylan. I also liked the Monkees. Right. You know, I didn't have a sense that the Monkees were this put-together band. By what? <laughs> by like a, a board, you know, who said, hey, we'll put these people together. I just knew they had great songs, and, and they, those songs still yeah. hold up. You know, they had great writers in Nashville writing that stuff. And I loved, I just always loved the Beatles. And it was really neat to see how they would change with each record, you know. And they were putting out sometimes two records in one year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were working so hard. And I loved the Beatles and I loved Dylan. But I was kind of scared of the Rolling Stones. 
when I was younger. And now I love them, but I thought they were, they were so crass. At what point did you think you would become a musician? Well, I always thought in the back of my head it would be fun to do that, but I was always dissuaded by an aunt we had named Aunt Liz, and it was my dad's sister, rest in peace. She actually inspired me because she said, you can't do that. You'll <laughs> never be able to do that. No, you need a real job. And whenever somebody would tell me something like that, it, it never would stop me from doing it. It actually was fodder. Right. And so um, in my mind, I thought it would be cool to do that, but I don't know. How do you even go about it? You know, nowadays, kids that start have so much available at their fingertips that I call them super virus kids. And I'm seeing a lot of them in Nashville, these kids that are like 22 years old, that when I was growing up, you would have to go, you couldn't say, oh, that sounds sort of like a cross with the Beatles and Tony Rice. You, you were like, this is the Beatles. That, they were the first ones. And you weren't able to just look up the chords to a song. You'd have to keep putting it on the record, try to listen, how am I gonna figure this out? And you didn't have all these resources available. And I call these super virus kids, of which I've been writing songs with lately, they're just amazing. They grew up knowing, oh, so it would be kind of like Doc Watson, a little bit of Doc Watson, and maybe B.B. King on this style. And they grew up with YouTube and with the internet and with all these beautiful tools at their disposal. And they're bad. They're it's like they're the younger baseball players you see coming up that are bigger and stronger. You wonder how would they play against a team from like the 1970s, like the Cincinnati Reds versus the Dodgers of today. Right. You know, would it be no contest? And and how they're using all these stats in baseball and all the number heads and, and money ball versus using your gut instincts. I don't know. My my the romantic side of me always wants to side with using your gut instincts mm -hmm. and using your while. But then there's also something to be said about statistics and all these uh, formulas for figuring things out. And I think there's a happy medium. But I'm meeting a lot of these kids that know so much, and like Billy Strings or Molly Tuttle, and they're just shredding. And, you know, I think you still have to learn to find soul, and that comes with age as you do it more. But they're not only can they play well, they're good lyricists. And I'm writing with them, and I'm, my head is spinning when they come over to my house. And they want to write with me because I had a hit song with Jewel. And I think they think, oh, maybe... Maybe you catch lightning twice and something could happen. So for me, it's been a joy, but it was kind of a long-winded answer to where you started. <laughs> I, I wonder, though, the, the, the hours that you put in dragging the needle back and forth uh -huh. and, and then the hours you put in touring and playing all the places, I'm not sure if they can replicate that. Well, there's something to be said about the school of hard knocks yeah. and the school of DIY, a DIY ethos, and going out there and finding the gigs and going, how do I even make this happen? I had such a hunger to do this that I, I remember this one moment is stamped in my head. And this guy came through town. His name was Breck Allen. He was in a van, a brown van that he had outfitted with a bed in it. <laughs> and he had his guitar and that was it. And he pulls up to this club in San Diego where I was playing. The club was called Megalopolis. And I had never played outside of San Diego. I'd just getting started playing gigs out. 
And this guy comes in in a van on tour, and he was from Colorado. You didn't have the internet. It was the early 80s. Right. And I just went, you're on tour. Just saying on tour. And he had a tour poster that he had sent out, and it was up in the window. And as far as I was concerned, this was the holy grail. And I knew I just wanted to latch on to him and talk to him because he was my only source of inspiration information i couldn't get on my iphone and start looking up how to tour or anything he his word was gospel truth to me so i watched his set and he was great he was using alternate tunings on the guitar he had a showdown and he was talking about oh i just played in arizona the other night and then i was here and oh my gosh in my mind when he said i just played in arizona i just picture this romantic driving through the grand canyon and he's on tour and how glamorous it sounded and so, anyways, after he finished, I said, hey, um, I know you're, you got your van you're sleeping in. I have an apartment. Do you want to come stay in my apartment? Because we were having this discussion. And he goes, I'll tell you what. I'll park outside your apartment and use your shower and your bathroom and stuff, but I want to sleep in my van because I have it outfitted out and I feel better sleeping with my guitars. And I was like, cool. So we went out to a Mexican restaurant, like a, one of those taco stands that's open 24 hours, and we sat and talked, and he had this book with all his gigs. And I talked to him till four in the morning. Finally, he goes, I gotta go to bed. Then we got up in the morning, we had breakfast, kept talking to this day, I'm still friends to the, with this guy. He teaches voice now, he doesn't tour anymore. And he looks at me, he goes, you weren't kidding. Cause I told him, this is what I wanna do. And I still talk about how he showed me so much. So from that one night, you were able to start a career. I started, I was gleaning information. I mean, there were, that was a milestone, a mile marker. There were other things that happened of me getting gigs. I used to drive around San Diego alone and go to bars all day long doing recon. I would, what I wanted to find, I wanted to find a bar that didn't have entertainment regularly but had a cool stage that that I could make that seemed like it could be hip where maybe bar flies were hanging out and I could turn it into my own thing. And I actually found a place in Old Town, San Diego. It was an Irish pub called Kelly's Pub. I drove all over and I would, I would drive all day long. I was supposed to be selling nipples, pipe nipples. I was a nipple salesman. But instead, on my time, I would drive around San Diego looking for the ultimate bar. And I found this place, and the guy was from, I think, Belfast. And I went in, and I said, hey, can I play here? And he was like, well, what do you do? And I say, um, I play guitar in a duo. We're called the Rugburns. And he goes, all right, but you can't charge to get in, and I'm not paying you. And I go, okay. <laughs> like that to me. He just he said I could play there. It was basically, I'm going to give you nothing. I'll give you a couple beers. So I told everybody, I got a gig. Okay, so before then, how many gigs are you doing? Oh, before that, I found that. I was playing regularly, and I was playing playing seven nights a week in Mexican restaurants, classical guitar. Oh, okay, right. I wouldn't sing. I would only play classical guitar. And then I, one night I sang the song Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. I don't know why, I just broke into song with no mic. (laughs) And I remember like three people clapped. And one of the waitresses came up and goes, I didn't know you could sing. <laughs> what a beautiful song that is, though. Yeah. We should go back and just kind of explain the nipple thing. Yeah. Okay, so the, these are things that attach onto pipes, right? The, yeah, a pipe nipple is a 
like these were PVC pipe nipples, PVC plastic, and it's a threaded piece of pipe. Like picture half inch by six, right. half inch by six. We had all these different sizes of PVC pipe and you'd screw a sprinkler head on the top of that. And those are called nipples. And that's really what they're called. So I was a nipple salesman. That was my gig. And I took my parents' advice literally when, before I graduated from college because they'd watched The Graduate one time too many and they kept going, plastics. Because that's what they say to the protagonist in uh, that uh, yeah, Dustin yeah, Hoffman. Yeah. When he's under the water and they keep going, plastics. It's brilliant, that film. It is brilliant. So that was my gig. I was a nipple salesman. But did you think that you were going to become a full-time musician? That was the goal? No, I didn't. And I wish I could say, I, I wish I could say in the Bob Dylan way, like in his book Chronicles, how it was destiny and how gorgeous George looked at him, almost as if to say, you're doing it, kid. No, for me... That was still this pie in the sky ideal. I wanted, I've always wanted to please my parents, and so I didn't want to let them down. They had helped me pay for this college education. So I, in my mind, I thought, well, I'll play at night, right. and I'll be able to have, a, you know, satiate that thing within me, which was to play. So I got a gig. When I got the job, I stopped playing classical guitar and uh, I got a job selling pipe nipples. And I said to the boss, I hope you don't mind, but I, I like to play music on the weekends. And he looked at me. He was a businessman. He went to Wharton, the same school that uh, Trump went to, right. the Wharton Business School at University of Pennsylvania. And he was a very conservative man. And I'm still friends with this guy. This is what's so funny with all these people and these stories. This is years ago and this guy is still a good friend of mine he and we couldn't be more different and so he says to me you play music and I said yeah and he goes no I love music do you like Jim Croce and I go yeah I love Jim Croce and we started talking about all these songs and he said well when are you going to start playing I go well I have to get I have to save up some money to get a PA because I found a bar and he goes what's a PA and I say, well, it would be these speakers and a microphone and so that we could be heard. And I remember the club. It was called the Mission Beach Club. And he says to me, well, how much is a PA? And I go, oh, it's like 1000 bucks at Carvin, like a nice one. I could probably get it for like 800 bucks. So when I save that up, I'll get it. And he goes, and I'd only worked there two weeks. And he pulls his checkbook out and he goes, let me write you a check for it. Wow. I go, what? He goes, yeah, how much? I go, it's probably like 800. He goes, let's make it 1,000. He goes, here's 1,000 bucks. Pay me back. He goes, what will you make playing at the Mission Beach Club? I go, I think we'll make like 100 bucks a night. And he goes, all right, just give me 50 bucks every Monday when you come in till you pay it off. And I go, okay. So he writes me a personal check for 100, I'm for 1,000 bucks. I go buy the PA. Sure enough, I pay him every week, 50 bucks every Monday. And he keeps track of it. And I finally pay him off. And he, I remember when I paid him off because he goes, dang, you were in my ATM for the week. <laughs> he was bummed that I finally paid him back. But he kind of helped give me a start, which is hilarious because it's just weird. He was my boss. Yeah. And then I ended up getting more gigs because I became, I, I, I would, that's all I'd think about. I'd be selling pipe nipples, but I didn't care about that. I wanted to play music 
and then I drive around and look for cooler clubs and how can I make this my scene? Because clubs we played would go out of business a lot of times. You know, it's a it's a transient business, the bar world. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with unsavory characters and secret basements and tax-free money passing hands and drugs and all kinds of stuff. It, it was a whole new education. And going back to what you said, a lot of the younger kids, true, might not. That's an education you get. Like 30 years later, as I sit here, or I don't know how many years has it been, close to 40 years maybe since the 80s, mm-hmm. 90, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm bad at math. All I know is I've been doing it a long time, and I feel like I definitely got my 10,000 hours in, and every time I think I've seen it all, something new happens. You know, like a, a fist fight at a bar, a owner pulling a gun on somebody, right. shots being fired, uh, you know, getting stiffed by the bar owner, <laughs> the bar going out of business, people saying they're going to go out of business in two weeks. Make sure you get paid cash. Don't let them write you a check. Like all these different things. Well, this is kind of like the song Folk Singer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Drugs. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, I, I can't help but to be struck by the, the um, Jim Croce connection here. You know, between your boss, his love of Jim Croce, and you singing for the first time a Jim Croce song. Isn't that weird? And then now I'm best friends with A.J. Croce, Jim's son, which is even weirder because once I started getting a little bit of notoriety in San Diego, I was in a band called The Rugburns, and we had a song called Hitchhiker Joe that got a lot of radio play. Can I just ask about that? Yeah. So how did that happen? So you were doing solo, you're doing these gigs. How did The Rugburns happen? So... I went to University of San Diego, and it was a Catholic university, Right. and my parents were so proud. And you went for Spanish and... Political science, yeah. and a little bit of religion. I took all political science classes and a lot of religion classes. I loved anything that had to do with religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Judaism. And were you thinking of teaching, or...? No, I just loved, I loved reading about religions. I found, I loved religion and politics. I found it so fascinating how uh, at the time I was in school, everything, there was like a lot going on in uh, Central America and in uh, Nicaragua. And there was uh, always growing up with this threat of communism and the domino theory that we were taught and how we were a blink away from nuclear war and with the Russians too. And so I found it great. I love, I was fascinated by the civil war in the United States. I was fascinated by world war one, uh, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, how that whole thing started. And then 1919, the Paris Accords, how that led to world war two. If you go back and read in 1919, they did everything wrong, everything wrong that led to the problems even today that are right. happening. And then World War II, the same thing, the problems that are happening in Israel, how they, um, you know, all the different agreements that were made as they divvied up the new world order that was happening at the time. So religion was so fascinating to me. And the teachers I had, were there was this one professor, Lance Nelson, who was obsessed with um, Gandhi and with India. And, oh... I just, I loved him and I would hang out and talk with him in his office because I went to a small Catholic university and the funnest part about the school I went to is I would invite professors home to Palm Springs with me. I invited two men home with me, uh, one of whom was a 
unabashed right-wing Nixon apologist and the other who was as far left as you could get and uh, uh, almost an anarchist, socialist, communist kind of guy. Dr. Otto and uh, Dr. Stoddard. Stoddard was a right-winger and I brought them both home for Thanksgiving and they both got extremely drunk and started arguing and then they both tried to hit on my sister. It was amazing. I just love chaos like that. I like throwing different groups of people together and then asking questions. For some reason, I'm able to not get angry and I don't know what it is. I'm more of like, I've always thought I'm like, I came here from another planet and I'm curious about everything and so I love asking people questions about religion and politics and everything and I don't get mad I don't care if somebody believes in God or doesn't believe in God I'm a I'm a live and let live guy I just find it fascinating as like when I meet someone who voted for Trump I mean this to me is so foreign you know what <laughs> was it that seduced you and I'm interested in finding the the seduction right. of what made this voter you know punch the ticket for this this man and I'm fascinated by it, like how somebody probably didn't even want to become president and could lose by three million votes in the popular vote, yet through, and I hate to use the word genius of him, but he found the chink in the armor, if you right. will, and found the, these battleground states and knew he had to go to them, and he started speaking directly to these people <laughs> that were being ignored over the years. They weren't, this, Trump is like a guy sitting at the end of the bar who's the drunk guy going as, as there's something on television happening with foreigners and he goes, he's the guy at the end of the bar who goes, you know what I'd do? I'd go down there with a shotgun and blow that guy's head off. And the guys at the bar are like, yeah, you seem like a good person. And so I find human behavior fascinating. And so how, what's, what's your crowd like? What, what is the fan base that you play to? Are they... Do, can you can you divide them up or? Well, I think I'm really lucky, and I have I have the best fans. I, I hate I hesitate to use the word fans because I think it sounds so egotistical. What would be the right word for it? I don't want to say partners because it sounds too egalitarian. I guess I would call them people who stumbled onto my music. <laughs> And went, hey, this seems like a cool thing. <laughs> but, it's, but it is a relationship, right? Like, I mean, most okay, people yeah, come it's back. a relationship. Yeah. We are in a relationship. Yeah, I guess I could say they're fans. They're fans of what I'm doing. I think that the people that come to see me are good people, and they're loving people. And I don't think they would rip you off. I think that they're they have a sense of humor, and they're open-minded because I'm saying crazy stuff on stage. And so I, okay. My girlfriend, Sharon says, you know what your crowd is? They're misfits. <laughs> she said her friend, but in a loving way. Yeah. She said her friend said, these people are misfits. And then Sharon and her looked at me and they go, well, duh, look at him. And so they're not, it's not like you can't say it's a hipster crowd. And it's not a non-hipster crowd. Right. It's its own thing. They're, <laughs> they're just like weirdos that somehow were drawn together. I think they're kind of like dysfunctional. And look at me. You know, I'm kind of dysfunctional. And so I think together we're, 
we're learning together and we're on this weird journey and I'm lucky that they've come along for the ride because they've been with me for years and new people jump on the bus some jump off they go I'm not into this what he's doing now and then when those people jump off more other people jump on but okay so when you started how different was this show to who you are today oh man it was way different when I started I was doing a lot of cover songs I didn't I was scared to write or I was scared to do stuff I'd been writing. So like I started, when we first started as Rugburns, we were doing like a Beatles medley and stuff. Mm-hmm. And our first gig was at a place called Oh Hungry's and Oh Hungry's had yard long beers. And this guy says, I mean, here's a reason why I don't drink anymore. So the guy says to us, he goes, listen, you get one yard long beer and I don't pay you, <laughs> but you get a tip jar and a, and the tip jar has to stay in front of the stage. You can't walk her up to people's tables. He had these rules. And I went, okay. I was just so happy to be playing at O'Hungry's in Old Town. So he gives us these yard-long beers. And I get hammered and knock mine over. And it <laughs> knocks my, the partner I was playing with, Rob Driscoll's over. And it knocks somebody else's over. So three of them break. And he charged us for them. So our tip jar had like 72 bucks and he goes, you did 80 bucks worth of damage so you owe me eight more bucks. So I had to go into pocket on the first gig. But I didn't even care. I was so happy we played. And he was like, maybe you want to not think about drinking so much. That was always bars. You know you're in trouble when bar owners are always, I was, that was the constant thing I noticed. You might want to think about not drinking so much. I remember our first manager said, why don't you just put whiskey Act like it's whiskey, and but put in iced tea. <laughs> like, I was constantly warned. I would get anonymous letters from people. What made you stop? Because well, it see, was costing you too much money? Yeah. Okay, when we found Kelly's Pub, the one I told you about, where the guy was from Ireland, I would do so much damage to the bar. And I'm not kidding you. Like, at a, one point, we were doing making like 400 bucks a night. But I would take the mic stand. And you know how they have those big mirrors that say, like, Bushmills? Yeah, they're yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I would take the mic stand and smash it into the mirror and break it. Rip the curtains off. They had these green curtains. Man, I'd rip them off of the curtain things. What do they call those? The uh, curtain rods. Yeah, yeah. I would rip them off of that and then put the curtains on my head and pour a pint of Guinness over my head, kick a hole through my guitar, put a hole in the guitar, and then pour a pint of beer inside the guitar and drink it through the hole I kicked in the side of the guitar. I am not lying. And then I would sometimes take the mic outside and say, said the audience, I just took it. I, I just took some magic mushrooms. I think I'm going to vomit. I want you guys to listen to the sound of the vomit. And I would vomit into a planter, miking the sound of the vomit, and then come back in. And I would end up naked on stage. There'd be glass all over the place. And so the, the guy, the Irish dude that owned the bar, I would come in the next morning to clean up, and it would be a mess. And he'd go, well, Steve, because we'd get paid the next day. Well, Steve. You did the best night ever. Because he would give us a percentage of the, the, the alcohol sales. I had a record on alcohol sales, 2200 bucks. You got 450 bucks, but you did 500 bucks worth of damage. So next week you're starting 50 bucks in the hole. I got to get the carpets cleaned. Why don't you not do the damage? Just don't drink. But he wouldn't <laughs> kick us out because we were making him so much money. People would show up at five and we wouldn't start till eight just to get a table and you could smoke back then on bars. They'd be smoking. And for some reason, all the girls, because it would be hot, they would wear bras. They'd take off their shirts. It'd be a smoky, sweaty (laughs) bar and all the girls would be in bras. So that brought in guys. And these girls were like, 
not in bras like slutty strippers. These were like feminist, tough, strong women, but they'd wear their bras smoking cigarettes. And then we'd get pints of Guinness and pour it over our heads, break stuff, go absolutely nuts on stage. And the shows were just crazy and people would line up to get in. I remember I said to the guy that owned the bar, I go, can I start charging? And he goes, okay. So we charged a dollar. I've never forgotten this. And so he made more money because there'd be like 200, 300 people a night coming and we get an extra 300 bucks. So, um, that's when you knew this is what you were meant to do. Yeah. Oh, I knew it. And I still didn't quit drinking. None of that was going to stop me. It was, I quit when it was time. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it was yeah. time for me. I had to. So it what was like 14 this, years ago. What made you decide to go solo? Oh. How difficult was that decision? That was really hard because the Rugburns, and I still say this, and this is a bold statement, but I truly believe this. And it might just be the sound of somebody crazy. But I truly believe had the Rugburns stayed together, we could have been as big as the Bare Naked Ladies because our shows were that fun. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were super fun, but we didn't have the discipline of the Bare Naked Ladies. We were more... Um, we were way more reckless. We would have been, had we gotten our act together, because we, we were getting a big following. Um, I remember we toured with that band Moxie Fruvis, and uh, remember that guy? He was like in the band Gian Gameshi. Yeah. I remember one night I did a bunch of cocaine with him, like I was in the rug burns, you know? And I remember sitting in this van with him, like this is long before he had his show or anything. And I remember sitting in this van and I was so coked out of my head and drunk. And I just looked at him. I was like, I love you. And he goes, I love you too. And I go, let's make out. And I remember <laughs> making out with him in the van, like kissing him. And he was like, uh, that was weird. So I always would like say, I had total like gay experience with a dude from Moxie Fruvis. It was pretty funny. Um, How much of that was the cocaine? A lot. <laughs> like I was just into trying new things, you know, and getting crazy in the rug burn. So I think that's what stopped us from that. But then I went solo because I met a girl named Jewel and uh, she was a uh, barista in a coffee house called Java Joe's. And then I fell in love with her and I started kind of going on the road with her. And she was, she said, how can I get a following like the rug burns? And so I said, well, you should find a bar. Let's or a, a coffee house. I go, not a bar for you. What you're doing is more coffee house. We need to find a coffee house that nobody goes to. This has always been my thing. I give advice to people. <laughs> don't find a place that already exists. Like don't go to Hughes room, right? Go to a place that, nobody knows of and make it your own and the reason I still believe in this and stand by it is because it gives you time to develop as an artist and it's not like we can slot you in on Thursday at six it's like no you go into some place where the owner is desperate and it's and find just some owner who's just down on their luck you know like doesn't have a lot of business who's bored but nice find that person and say hey what have you got to lose? I got nothing going on and you got nothing going on. Maybe something will happen. Let's rub two sticks together. Well, it's worked for you. It's always worked for me. And so find a misfit owner. And so 
I went everywhere with Jewel, and we found this place called the Interchange, spelled N-I, I mean, spelled I-N-N-E-R-C-H, like change from within, right. not the interchange. So we find the interchange, and there's this woman, Nancy. She's down on her luck, <laughs> <laughs> drinking too much, has a terrible boyfriend. I'm like, pounce now. <laughs> so we find her. And she says, sure, you can play here. I'm not going to pay you, <laughs> which is the best thing. <laughs> this seems to be this constant. Yeah. Like, you don't want to be paid because if there's pay involved, then you're beholden to these people. If you have nothing to lose, it really allows you to develop as an artist. There's no money exchanging hands yet. Right. You want to develop and become the pure artist that is you because everybody has their own fingerprint. Every snowflake is different. You can only be you. However, and this is what was so cool about the old days of the record business, they had A&R people, artists and repertoire, and they would let these people, like John Hammond with Dylan, it was, it was called Hammond's Folly when he signed Bob Dylan. Right. And, you know, his son became a great blues guy. And Hammond's Folly, he signs Bob Dylan, but he allowed him to develop. So if there's not a lot of money exchanging hands and you find this place, Jewel was allowed to develop. We would go out shopping at thrift stores. She'd buy lederhosen because she'd see it in the corner and go, I'm going to wear lederhosen tonight and do poetry all night long. She would do 10 new songs in a night. It allowed her to be an artist. That was her best stuff she was writing. And she wasn't afraid. Like these songs would go on 10 minutes long and wouldn't even have a chorus. And I would say, let's work on a chorus now. Let's try this. But it allowed her to try out all these different pairs of shoes, if you will, and all these personas. Next thing you know, man, Tommy Mottola's showing up from Sony and Danny Goldberg's showing up at the time he was with Atlantic Records. And she started getting record deal offers. Did you know she had something special? No. I knew she was a special person, but right. that's the thing with me. I just knew that I loved her. The very first time I saw her, I was like, I remember thinking, I want to kiss her. Like, I was just like this feeling like she's beautiful. She was like this feral cat, didn't wear any makeup, had like kind of stunk, like B.O., like <laughs> living in her van, you know, but like not in a bad way, like that way that's kind of attractive. Like, But you had that same feeling for Gian Gomeshi too, though. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Like, you know that, um, how people have pheromones and stuff, you know? It was like this... She had this animal thing, and she was like this wild animal that grew up on a homestead in in Homer, Alaska, with an outhouse, like pooing outside, and and she would uh, skin her own cattle, right? Kill the own cattle, and she used to like tell me how she would kill me and skin me, and she would like take her fingernail down my chest and go, you know, if I was to kill you, I'd slit you right down your chest and peel your skin back and pull your guts out and then hang your skin up to dry and I'd cook your ribs and eat them and then I'd I'd make shoes out of your skin and I was like this is hot <laughs> so but that, so she was like really imaginative and she used to um take pens and do drawings on my butt that were this is what was so cool this is what I love about art she would do drawings on my butt with these pens on my naked butt that nobody would ever see. I'd shower off, but they were like masterpieces before cell phones, before we would take pictures of them. Right. And they were just for us. And that's the beauty of art. Tom Robbins talks about this in a book, like 
that's, it goes back to that whole thing. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, did it actually fall? And if you're just making art for art's sake, he talks about that in, I think it's in Skinny Legs and All. And uh, it's this whole sense of art. So with Jewel, then we had this hit song and I was like, I'm going to go on the road with her. I wanted to always be around her. And they put her on the road opening for Peter Murphy, like a goth person. And there, there would be like all these goth kids and Jewel comes out, I just want you to know I believe in angels. <laughs> like it would have nothing to do with these goth kids, but she'd have them crying. And I knew she had something special. And I still will say this to this day. You put her around a fireplace with a guitar with 10 other singers, and she is going to blow your mind with no bells or whistles, just a guitar and a voice, stripped down to the essence. It's amazing. What did that song do for you? Wow. The song we are speaking of is called You Were Meant For Me. And it... Well, the crazy thing is, is when we wrote it, I didn't know it was going to be a hit. You don't know. And we were uh, surfing down in Mexico and camping, and we wrote probably 10 songs on that trip. The one I thought that was going to be a hit was called Food Stamp Love. And the hook went, I'm sick of your food stamp love. Like, obviously, it's never been heard of again. <laughs> I, I don't even know. But it was like about how your lover doles out love like food stamps, and you're on government relief program. <laughs> that's how they're giving you their love. I was like, that's the hit. And Atlantic looked at me like, you are special. Just go back to your corner. It's okay. <laughs> so, so at this point, had you done your first couple albums on your own by the time Jewel's song came out? No, I had only done Rugburn's records. Okay, and so we were signed to Zappa's early label called Bizarre Planet, Bizarre Straight, and Bizarre Planet. And then we got signed to that label that uh, NWA was on, right? That rap label, but they had an alt rock division. We would go in there. They'd have armed guards because rappers were coming in shooting up the office <laughs> the nwa people and like ice cube would come in with a baseball bat and break the place up like there was craziness happening it was in the cnn building in los angeles and that's what the Rugburns were signed to so no i don't i'd only done stuff with the rug okay and then i met jewel and i, I so this thing so explodes low. yeah and what does it do to you well first of all it gave me big checks that came in the mail of which does that change you no i still lived in the same place and drove the same old truck money all i need is enough money to do what i'm doing pay my rent i don't have extravagant tastes i like nice hotels but that's all part of the gig of being on the road and that's right. taken care of i just i don't want to stand some crappy place but no it hasn't changed me really um, but does it change you in the way that you write these songs and you think Food Stamp Love is going to be the big hit? Yeah. You write that kind of stuff and then this thing explodes that you Oh, no does it idea. make me want to write a hit then? Yeah, or, or and then that would be one possible change. But, you know, in another way, do you strive for it or do you get away from writing that kind of stuff? Like, how does it affect you when you have a hit like that? Well, people tell you we need another hit. Yeah. And can you guys do that? And that <laughs> queers the deal. Because right. once you're trying to do it, it's not good. I remember sitting down with Jewel and trying to write another one. I was like, we can't do this. It was like, we, you know, it really affected. I felt like, I, I, I think it affected our relationship because here I was in love with this girl who was just 
not just, I mean, but she was a barista in a coffee house living in her van and then moved in with me and I was in the rug burns. And I remember she came on tour with us and I brought her to Cleveland, Ohio. And we opened up for the Ramones at this big festival called Buzzard Fest. But prior to that, we were playing this little club and there's all these Cleveland Rugburns fans. And Rugburns fans were kind of crass because we had wild songs. And I remember I brought Jewel out and she was wearing these sparkly pants and a white top with some cleavage showing, I think. And nobody knew who she was. She didn't have a record deal. She was, we were writing songs. She was my girlfriend. And guys in the crowd are going, show us your tits. Like just being very crass. Right. And I said, shut up. Shut up. I got so mad I wanted to punch some guy for saying that. And I go, this girl's going to be huge one day. You just watch. And sure enough, she did. <laughs> like, it was weird. Like, boy, did she get huge. But when you have success like that, and it's somewhat indirect, but it is direct. It's your song. Do, do you continue writing the same way, or does it affect the way you write? No, because that bored me. Like, I had a manager at the time. He goes, we got to get you writing more hits. We're going to get together you with this person, with this person. And I just didn't want to because it wasn't fun. If it's not fun, I don't want to do it. Fun, it's got to be fun for me. And it can't, I don't want to see, I don't want to do something for the money because it's got to be fun. It keeps me going. These shows are still fun for me. Like I'm playing a show tonight. I mean, by the time people hear this, this show will be long gone, but I'm playing in Toronto at a club called the Dakota. And this is fun. Fun. What's define fun? Because, because you know, automatically I listen to some of your songs and I think of funny, but it's not necessarily just funny. Like I don't know if that ever gets in the way. But I hear a song like, like uh, I want all my friends to be happy. And I think that's what it's called. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful song. But I, I presume I understand that it's not. It comes from a kind of a darker place, right? Yeah, lost a friend. Right. From so Brantford, Ontario. So explain. Fun to me. Like, how do you... What, what's fun for you? Well, like, last night, I played the Dakota. I'm doing two nights in a row. Right. And I went in, and I had, like, six new songs I'd just written in the last week. And I get to do that. I'm not... I'm not an artist who's on an oldies circuit. Like, maybe Stephen Stills. Right. And I mean this with the utmost respect. What I mean is, if you have to go in there and they're going... You have to do Love the One You're With, and you have to do this, and it's harder for you to do the newer stuff. Right. Writing is something I've you do constantly. I've never had a hit. I haven't. Jewel had a hit. Right. I don't have to sing that song. I will every once in a while, but I have songs people like. But last night, they come in, and I'm doing six songs they've never heard, and I have to read the words, and I'm laughing about it, and I'm getting paid to do that, and I'm making it entertaining, and everybody's so f- having such a good time, and I'm getting a rush out of it because the body makes its own drugs. So I'm nervous because nobody's heard these songs. And there's nothing better than walking on a tightrope in front of an audience with no net underneath. And if the song fails, it fails, but it gives you this rush of energy which makes the rest of the show so good. And if I can always remember that, I can always have good shows. So it makes it fun because if you take a big risk at the beginning of a show, you've already failed in some way because it's not going to totally work out because it's untested material. 
which means the rest of the show, you are so fearless. And if you're fearless, that create in my mind, that creates pure art, true art. If you just go by this tried and true set list every night, the same thing, I think you could, that would be like sleepwalking to me. Were you always like this? When did this, when did you decide to challenge yourself? Um, What really happened to me though, something did happen where, and I came in from surfing in San Diego one day. I've never forgotten this. I got out of the water. I was starving and my friends were getting ready to have people come over and they had all the food set out on this table overlooking the water. And I just went running up and they went up to get something. And man, I was hungry. And I just grabbed three brownies and ate them. And then went upstairs and I go, God, I was so hungry. I'm sorry I ate three of those brownies, but I need more food. My friend goes, no. The brownies? And I go, yeah. And he goes, dude, you're only supposed to eat a quarter. And I go, what do you mean? (laughs) He says, they're so loaded with weed. And so I took a shower and I tripped harder than I did ever on acid. And I got so scared and I was begging my friends to take me to the hospital. I thought I'd gone insane. I really started crying and I was so, I I go, I'm never going to come down from this. And then somebody handed me a guitar. They go, before you take them to the hospital, give them a guitar. So they gave me a guitar and I was on the beach and I wish somebody had filmed this. I put on the greatest improv show that my friend of mine who was there, this is back in the 80s, told me, the thing went on two and a half hours and I, I did stand up like with nothing planned and made up songs did songs I knew people were crying laughing and I went it was like I took a left turn in my brain and it opened something else up and I went wow if I can remember the path I just walked down in my brain and get to that place again I'm doing good and I think ever since then I've been trying to get to that path and sometimes I get really close without drugs. I mean, right. like knowing through muscle memory how to get to that place, to take a chance and to take a left turn and end up in some dark closet where you're taking a risk because the risk then brings the best rewards if it works out. And well, if you take a risk, you're usually going to land on your feet. <laughs> what is success to you right now? Success to me is being able to do this till I'm. 90 years old and keep putting out art i'm already successful but get better at it like get my get better at what i'm doing make put together a show that is even better and maybe put it into a one-man show that goes into theaters or film a netflix special which would take structure which would mean i'd need to do more of a get a formula together to put together a show like would that change things though if you decided to make it I think that it would be neat to do it for like a year. Um, like Springsteen just did Broadway mm-hmm. for a couple years, and I went to see that show, and he does the same show. Leonard Cohen's shows, I knew his drummer really well. I'm still friends with him. Raphael Gaol is his name. And he said the show was the exact same every night, all the way down to where Leonard Cohen would lean down to one knee. He'd have it marked off, and he'd say, he knew exactly when he was taking his hat off, and he'd say, this is a song I wrote when I was young with a dream and he'd stand back up and I said is that weird to do the exact same show and he said no it was almost like meditative for him like a form of tai chi and I thought that's beautiful in a way so maybe all this has been this training ground for me 
And then I put together this one-man show that could go into a theater. And I'd still have to ad-lib a little bit because it's, I have this kind of side of me that was attracted to like Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams and stuff right. to take a detour, but actually have this show. So I still have a long ways to go, but it would be neat to be able to put it into like this theater show and, and have, a, have a beginning, a middle, and an end and a sense of redemption. You know, mm-hmm. have something with laughter, with tears, and then, but the story's unwritten yet. I still have a lot of living to do and put it into this show and write a book as well and accompany it with that. It'd be cool. I want to see that. Um, I know you got to go. Sound check time. So um, thank you so much for doing this. Real oh, pleasure man. meeting you. That was so fun. Sorry I rambled so much. No, no, I feel like we could go on for hours, but oh, you got yeah, a gig to get to, so thank you so much for doing this. Go Padres. <laughs>